this week on the Back Table Podcast. So there's actually this anthropologic theory called the Great Leap Forward, which is basically how humans develop speech. So what happens is the larynx descended and the tongue came further back. So we basically prioritized the pharynx over the larynx to allow us resonant speech and all the speech sounds. But in doing that, the tongue came further back. And now when we lay down, we have this big muscle sitting in our mouth and our throat that can now obstruct our airway. So we have the benefits of speech, but there are evolutionary downsides to that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. We're here to bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT. And my name's Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT in Dallas, Texas. Good morning, Gopi. Good morning, Ash. How are you today? I'm good. I'm trying not to melt in this 105-degree <laughs> weather we're having in Dallas here in July. It's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> it's, it's tough. But, you know, podcasting with you in the AC this morning, so that's nice. Keeps it cool. Podcasting with the AC on. (laughs) We've got a great show today. I'll go ahead and introduce our guest. We've got Dr. Colleen Pline. She is a general otolaryngologist practicing in the Chicago area since 2015. Her practice is focused on minimally invasive in-office rhinologic procedures and management of snoring and sleep apnea. She has a particular interest in functional nasal breathing and its relation to chronic craniofacial pain. Good morning, Colleen. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to the show. Let's start off. Just you tell us about about you and your practice and how you how you got where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So I finished my training about 2015. So I've been out in practice for about seven, seven years now and have had a couple different jobs. I was a hospital employed physician and then I was in one private practice and another private practice. So I've really spent time kind of getting into the niche I want to be in for my practice. And about a year ago, I was introduced to a dentist who actually sought me out because he was looking for people who performed nasal valve procedures. And I went to meet him thinking that it was just a regular, hey, hi, nice to meet you. Can I refer you patients sort of thing? And he launched into this entire world of how he treats people and nasal breathing and facial pain. And I was like, what are what are you talking about? I've never heard this before. I'm like, what? And he was like, no, no, no. Let me tell you about this. Let me teach you about this. And so what he actually ended up doing was bringing me to a conference that just happened to be in Chicago. And I started learning about all this and the relationship between nasal breathing and sleep apnea and 
facial pain and temporomandibular disorders. And it opened up this entirely new world that has really changed my practice for the better. And it's something that we don't learn in our training and nobody ever talks to us about. I think to our detriment, because I think we could help a lot more people than we do if we really understand this stuff. So when you say functional nasal breathing, can you define it? Is that just not mouth breathing? Essentially, yeah. It's unobstructed nasal breathing with your mouth closed. So the way we are meant to breathe is with our mouth closed, with our tongue sitting fully on the roof of our mouth and unobstructed airflow through the nose. And doing that has a variety of benefits that we'll talk about, but that's the goal, is mouth closed, breathing through your nose. So mouth breathing, and this probably sounds so ignorant, especially, <laughs> but it's never just habit. It can become habit, right? So we, it starts out, and most of the problems often start in childhood, as I'm sure you have seen in your practice, that there's some obstruction in the nose. So we start out as obligate nasal breathers, right? Everybody knows that. Our larynx is high up in the pharynx and it descends as we get older. And that's kind of a ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny sort of thing, right? So if you look at the animal kingdom in animals that don't have speech, their larynx is much higher and their tongue sits much further forward, right? You don't see animals with obstructive sleep apnea. So there's actually this anthropologic theory called the great leap forward, which is basically how humans develop speech. So what happens is the larynx descended and the tongue came further back. So we basically prioritized the pharynx over the larynx to allow us resonant speech and all the speech sounds. But in doing that, the tongue came further back. And now when we lay down, we have this big muscle sitting in our mouth and our throat that can now obstruct our airway. So we have the benefits of speech, but there are evolutionary downsides to that. Yeah. Can we, just to set the stage, talk about the importance of nasal breathing and downsides of mouth breathing? I mean, I think at a very like basic level, we're like, I tend to think that we're like, you know, you breathing is breathing. Like you're, mm -hmm. you breathe through either, you know, maybe you have a tracheostomy, you're breathing through a hole in your neck, you're breathing through your nose, you're breathing through your mouth. If you're moving air, you're breathing. So why why does it matter? <laughs> and that's what we're taught, right? So that's what we're taught. Oxygen is oxygen. And that may be true in terms of sustaining life, but it's not necessarily true in terms of optimal function. So the nose does a bunch of different things. So we know that it warms and humidifies air, right? So we know when someone has a tracheostomy, if someone has a laryngectomy, what's their biggest problem? Humidification, right? They don't have humidification. It filters the air that we breathe, right? So that's very important for our immune system. You know, the turbinates grab particulate matter. Nasal breathing is important for ciliary function inside the nose. So part of the reason, one of the theories goes that why do we see enlarged tonsils in kids? Well, if they're breathing through their mouth, the tonsils, which are lymphoid organs, are getting exposed to all this air and all these particles that they shouldn't be. And now you have tonsillar hypertrophy as a secondary problem. It's not the primary problem causing the sleep apnea or those issues. It's secondary from not breathing through their nose. Our sinuses also make nitric oxide, which is produced in the mucosal lining of our sinuses. And it's then put out into the nasal airway. And nitric oxide is a vasodilator. So it helps with our blood pressure. It decreases stress. It also increases the efficiency of oxygen transfer to the tissues. So there's actually been studies done 
on elite athletes that when you change them from being nasal breathers to mouth breathers in an exercise test, their exercise capacity reduces significantly. And we also know that people who breathe through their mouth actually breathe at a faster rate than people who breathe through their nose. And that actually ends up in, instead of actually having our carbon dioxide levels in our blood be slightly too low and very subtle shifts in our pH in our blood have effects on our body. And so there's more I could go on, but those mm -hmm. are, I'd say, some of the <laughs> some of the major things. And the thing about it is if you look in the population, about 75% of people have some sort of issue like this. It's a problem of humanity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll have mouth breathers just at night when they sleep, but also mouth breathers 24 hours a day or some would just exercise. And do those categories make a difference to you? Sure. I mean, definitely. So in my practice, the vast majority of people I see is for snoring and sleep apnea. And so they'll come in for the snoring and sleep apnea. But if you ask, they'll say, yeah, you know what? I never really breathe through my nose. Yeah, I'm primarily a mouth breather. Or So it's very rare that someone comes in and says, oh, it's just when I exercise. I mean, that does happen. And we can talk about like the constellation of how the nose gets that way, because it's almost the way the nose develops and develops obstructed. There's no like little bit. It's usually either totally non-functional or really not functional much or works well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Like, why do some people have issues? Like, why do people develop deviated septums or turbinate hypertrophy or nasal valve collapse and things that make their nose pinch off? If we're all supposed to be breathing through our noses, you would think that we would, our craniofacial skeleton would grow to have a, you know, big hole in the middle of our head so that we breathe <laughs> fine. <laughs> For sure. So, What's interesting is this is actually an evolutionary problem for human beings. So we think of all evolution as good and helpful in having new things. But really what's happened to humans, especially in the past, even as recent as the past two or three hundred years, there are a couple of orthodontists who are doing this research and they're actually measuring facial skeletons from the 1600s, 1700s and compared to today. And what we see is a narrowing of the face, so a shrinking and a hypoplasia of the maxilla and the mandible. And we believe that the main reason for this is due to the introduction of the processed diet and processed food, primarily during the Industrial Revolution. So you think of us as, you know, cavemen or, you know, native cultures, you're eating foods in their most raw form, right? Or even if you cook them, cooking tenderizes stuff, but if you're eating vegetables and plants and roughage, you have to really chew those things. And we know that chewing helps develop the muscles of mastication, but in turn, those forces actually generate bone growth in the mandible and in the maxilla. So what we're seeing with processed diets is, you know, we don't have to chew our food as much, especially kids. We give them more processed things, soft things, and you get that hypoplasia, particularly of the maxilla, but the mandible as well. So it's not growing wide enough. And that in turn is narrowing the nasal aperture. And the other thing that happens is as that nasal aperture isn't wide enough and we have a more inflammatory diet that's irritating our nasal mucosa, we start to mouth breathe. When we start to mouth breathe, our tongue no longer sits on the roof of our mouth. 
And the tongue on the roof of the mouth is really important for that maxillary horizontal growth. So that's why you start to see that very high arched palate that we see in kids who have what we think of as adenoid facies, right? It didn't get like that out of nowhere. So now you have a maxilla that's starting to arch and the maxillary spine is the floor of the nasal septum. So as the maxillary spine starts to ascend, there's nowhere for the cartilage to go. So now it buckles and now you have a deviated septum. So you have a deviated septum. The piriform aperture is not as wide as it should be. So now the nasal sidewalls are at a more acute angle than they should be and you have nasal valve collapse. And the turbinates is mostly from allergies and inflammatory diets, but basically you've just got the width of the nasal aperture is not as good as it should be. So now your mouth breathing even more. And so this is why we don't have enough room in our faces for our teeth, right? <laughs> right? So why do we all need our, why do we all need our wisdom teeth out? Yeah. Because there's, right, exactly. So that's a big thing. And we'll talk about that later. But if you look at native cultures and they've studied this, so people who don't have these diets, you go and find them. And there are accounts from the 19th century about this. You go and see them and they all have perfect teeth. Their teeth are perfectly straight. They have room for all their teeth. And that's because their faces have developed the way they should. So our rash of needing orthodontia, right? We're fixing the cosmetics, but we're not addressing the functional problems that are that are underlying all of this. So... I don't know if this is, I apologize if this is jumping ahead, but for the child then who comes in from the age of two to six, you take out the tonsils and adenoids, or let's say it's just an adenoid problem, but they still are mouth breathing because like you said, there might be mid-face hypoplasia, there may be retrognathia, there may be the high arched palate. You know, we're not always jumping to turbinates at that age. What do you do? What else should we be addressing? Because I'm like, oh, you're not snoring. You're not pausing. That's great. A little mouth breathing. That might just be habit. You're going to, right? You should grow. Do you grow out of that? Or is that? I don't know. Well, so what's so fascinating about that is I know that, you know, as a pediatric ENT, you know, like when you look at the studies, well, why do the studies show that there's a big benefit for removing the tonsils and adenoids in the short term? But in the long term, these kids still have problems. And what you're talking about is exactly the issue. So we're addressing essentially the symptom, but not the problem. So there's a few different things. So number one, early orthodontic intervention, super important. Okay, so there are people, Kevin Boyd in Chicago and and, and others who really advocate for early maxillary expansion, right? Because when you're a kid, those sutures haven't fused yet. You have a lot more wiggle room. So Yes, expansion for these kids. How early are we talking? Basically, they'll tell you as early as they can tolerate. So they really say four or five is the first time they should be having an at least an evaluation if you're concerned about them having these problems because they can you can make such a big difference. So that's number one. And usually these people will work with people who are called myofunctional therapists. So myofunctional therapy is about promoting these behaviors of keeping the tongue on the roof of your mouth, keeping your lips sealed, strengthening the tongue, changing the diet. So there are these therapists who are really trained to help in these problems. Unfortunately, there's not a ton of them and finding a good one is difficult, but they are out there. And these interventions can make a humongous difference because we can impact the facial growth when they're younger, but the older they get, it's harder and harder to do. Like once a kid is at 11 or 12, you're already behind the eight ball. So 
The biggest thing that I advocate is actually you just got to look for these things. If you look for them, you will see them everywhere. My practice isn't, I don't do pediatrics, but I see this in my own kids. And being able to do that is going to save so much pain and heartache and intervention later on, not to mention their quality of life overall. Yeah. Does changing the diet in kids, does that like basically having them chew more and eat less soft stuff? So, yes, you know, within reason, you know, I'm still an ENT, I'm still an airway doctor. I know people are super into, you know, baby led weaning and those sorts of things. And no, I don't want your child to choke on food, but age appropriate, keeping things in their least processed form. Right. And it's difficult because the question is, you know, you have to balance safety with functionality, but also minimizing, again, minimizing processed food, which we know is good dietary advice overall. Just regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. For sure. In terms of orthodontics and myofunctional therapy, we said the younger the better. But of course, in terms of access and insurance and knowledge, right? It's not like this is part of our normal repertoire of workup and treatment options. My question though is, is there an age at which these things don't help? Or is this something that you do for any, whether the patient is 20, 40, 60 years old who comes in that you say, okay, we're going to try myofunctional therapy. And is there certain ages or things like that? Yeah, no, they work with all ages, you know, and they have age appropriate things. And there are even age appropriate, like just this morning, I was giving my daughter this little thing. It's it's kind of cool. It's called the Myo Munchie. And basically, it looks like a tiny little, almost like a football mouth guard, but it's got like little prongs inside of it and little things for them to do with their tongue. But basically, it's something to give them in their mouth that they're like, oh, I can chew on this. Oh, I can play with my tongue with this. It basically stimulates their, you know, using those muscles, right? So, no, there's no age in which it doesn't help. But of course, and this kind of comes back to what we were originally talking about, you can't do it. None of this will help you if you can't breathe through your nose, right? So learning to close your mouth and do all those things, well, if your nose is obstructed, you know, you're going to naturally do that because you naturally you need to breathe, right? So you have to look at this stuff in conjunction with getting the kids to breathe through their nose. And that's where I go back to what you were talking about, about turbinates, right? So with those kids and the sleep disordered breathing and those sorts of things, I do start to pay attention to the nose a little bit earlier because my threshold, and again, I don't do a ton of this, but I will get patients sent to me. Like I work with a dentist who does a lot of this stuff on kids and they'll say, you know, we've been doing everything and everything. The kid, this kid can't still can't breathe through their nose. And I'm like, okay, well, we can do a turbinate reduction on them. Like, you know, is it super common? No, but is there any real super downside to doing it? Not really. Yeah. Can we talk about pathologies that we might be able to specifically link to mouth breathing? OSA, poor sleep quality. And specifically, I mean, you know, for patients who come in and they're not saying, I can't breathe through, maybe they're just so used to it that they're coming in and they have ear pain or they have, you know, headaches and you have to maybe do a little bit more digging to see if there is actual problems breathing through their nose. So this is the part that's made my practice so much better because when I came out of training, I was like everybody else. When you're like, you get the patient with, you know, unilateral ear pain or sinus and you look in their ear, ears normal. Okay, well, it's TMJ. Okay, go see this other dentist. I can't help you. And then you have an unhappy patient and it's frustrating for you and it's no fun. Or the quote unquote, I have sinus patient, right? You know, I have sinus headaches. You know, I have pain in my forehead, pain in my cheeks. 
you work them up, you put them on Flonase, you scan them, their sinuses are totally clear. And you're like, well, go see a neurologist, right? So we can help these people. So the thing to understand is when someone is a chronic mouth breather, so they usually alternate between two activities. Their mouth is open. So now you're, again, your muscles of mastication are engaged. And alternately, they clench too. So these are people who clench their teeth during the day. So you get the inflammation from the chronic clenching. The other thing that happens that we don't recognize as much is when we don't, when we're mouth breathers, when our mouth is open to optimize our breathing, so it's both gravity and to optimize our breathing, what happens is our jaw comes down and our head comes forward. So you get what's called this forward head posture. So if you look at someone from the side, ideally their ear, the middle of their ear should line up with a line that goes straight through their shoulder. Forward head posture is when the head comes forward. So you see all these people, and I'm, I'm one of them, I have this problem, where people are always like, stand up straight. Why are you leaning over? Why is your posture so bad? And it's because your head is forward. And for every inch your head comes forward, it adds about 10 pounds of weight to your cervical spine. So these people have chronic neck pain, chronic shoulder pain, right? You're like, what, what do I do? No matter how many massages I get, this won't go away. And so the other thing that happens now is you have these like C1, C2 nerve roots that are all irritated from, from this. And you actually, if you x-ray these people, you see they get a loss of the curvature of their cervical spine. It should have this nice soft lordosis to it and, and it's actually straight when you x-ray them. And the area of the spinal cord that those run through is they all run through the trigeminal nucleus. It's all the same. I know I hate neuroanatomy. I don't like to talk about it at all. But the end result is that basically our brain starts to register this as facial pain and migraine type symptoms, right? So when you have these people who have chronic headaches, chronic facial pain, pressure, you know, tension type headaches, it's all from their head not sitting right on their shoulders. And why is their head not sitting right on their shoulders? Because they're not breathing properly. So if you help these people breathe better, it's amazing how many of these headache symptoms and jaw symptoms get better. They may need some other things. They may need some decompression therapy. There are other things you can do in the short term to get their pain better. But sending them off to the neurologist doesn't fix anything. They get put on a bunch of drugs or not recognizing their sleep problem. That's the other thing is these patients often have sleep issues and they may not have the frank, obvious sleep apnea that we're used to seeing, but they're not sleeping properly. That's also contributing to their symptoms. So the one thing I would say to kind of just bring this all together is we see these problems way more often in women than we do in men. You know, in men, we're used to kind of the larger guy, big neck, large tongues, you know, sleep apnea. In women, these sleep problems and these breathing problems manifest more as pain than they do as snoring and somnolence, right? So we think about it, it's described as like the young fit female syndrome, right? How many of these people do we see that come in with facial pain and headaches? And often we're like, well, we can't help you, but we can, we definitely can. Sorry, that was a little rambling no, and all no, over the place. No. I don't know if it made <laughs> sense. No, I'm, it, it does. And actually, <laughs> great. Um, my question for you is, in terms of imaging and posture, is that something, Colleen, that you're looking at on your physical exam or when the, as soon as the patient walks in the room, you're kind of 
looking at those things? Do you get, are there certain things on x-ray or MRIs that you're looking for to help you determine that, hey, this is maybe a posture thing that's related to mouth breathing that helps you put it all together? So what I do generally is you can usually tell just from their symptoms. So the way that things happen is, but again, you have to be looking for it. So say someone comes in, you know, middle-aged, you know, woman or even younger woman comes in and says, I'm having headaches. Okay. Or facial headaches. Right. And then you start to ask them, okay, well, do you snore? Oh yeah, I do. Do you clench your teeth? Oh yeah, I definitely grind my teeth. Do you get headaches? You know, is your neck and shoulder shoulder? Oh yeah, it's sore all the time. So as soon as you like, it's, it's kind of fun because you can sort of, they're like, how did you know that? How I didn't come in for this. So you see it all the time. So I don't have to necessarily look for those things. My, my dental colleagues who do this, they actually take photos of people's postures and things like that. And you can actually see the changes before and after treatment. I obviously don't really have time in my office to do that. But I'll ask them, I'll say, do you have a problem? Like, do people, are people always telling you to stand up straight, like that you have bad posture? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it's not your fault. It's, you're not just lazy, Right. It's not that you just, you know, need some training. It's that you, your body is functionally doing this to help you breathe. It's one of those things that if you start to look for it, you see it everywhere. This is, I, I tell all my patients, like, this is a problem of humanity that is completely under-recognized and, and under-treated. So that's a good launching off point to kind of talk about what your evaluation looks like. So patients come in and you're, you know, asking the right questions. I think that's, you know, probably an important thing. And then, you know, do you use questionnaires? Do you use like the, you know, nose score, NOSC questionnaire, or do you just kind of have your spiel of questions you go through that kind of help guide you? Yeah, I don't use any questionnaires. I mean, we do, obviously, we're sleep apnea practice, so we use Epworth and Stop Bang, things like that. And the, the really interesting thing, too, is a lot of times you have to convince these patients that they have a nasal problem. So a lot of times they'll, you know, they'll come in for snoring and I'm like, well, can I, can you breathe through? And I'm like, yeah, I breathe through my nose, fine. You stick a scope in their nose, there's just no room, right? So you kind of have to like sort of plant this idea in their head a little bit because, you know, usually I'll see these patients, I'll give them some medications, they'll come back for follow-up. And so many of them come back and they're like, you know, now that you said that, I was like paying attention and you're right. I breathe through my mouth all the time. Or you'll ask them, does your, you know, does your bed partner notice that you, you know, when you're snoring, you sleep with your mouth open? In terms of people who come in complaining of sinusitis, right? Or I, oh, I get a sinus infection every month, right? So we know as ENTs that that's really unlikely that you're getting a sinus infection every single month. I mean, it happens, but it's rare. And you say, well, when you get your Tell me about your typical sinus infection. Oh, I get pain here and I get pain here. I'm like, okay, well, is your, does your nose feel more congested? Are you coughing? Is there green stuff coming out of your nose? No, no, no. But they go to their doctor and they get put on antibiotics. So starting to look for these kind of, I think where most ENTs are pretty good at distinguishing headache from, from true sinusitis. But what we don't want to do is when it's not true sinusitis, just push them off and say, well, that's not for me asking about their sleep quality. Because even if they don't snore, don't complain of snoring. It's like, well, how's your sleep? You know, do you feel like you're resting? They're like, no, I wake up a couple times a night. Or in men, this is a huge thing. So how many men do we see who they're like, I say, do you get have to get up in the middle of the night to pee? And they're like, yeah. And they're like 50. And they all say that it's their prostate. It's not their prostate. So what happens 
the hypoxia actually causes the heart to make more BNP, right? Which makes you actually, it thinks that you're fluid overloaded. So your body makes more urine and now you got to get up and go pee, right? So how many, there's so many people that when you treat their sleep, they don't have to get up to go to the bathroom anymore, right? You really shouldn't have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, even in women. So that's a big marker for me. Teeth grinding is a big thing. So I have no idea how to actually like look at teeth and know if you're grinding. I, I'm not a dentist, but you'll ask them, did you grind your teeth or has your dentist ever told you to grind your teeth? Oh, yeah. And then sometimes they'll have a mouth guard. The really important thing to know about mouth guards, about bite plates, is what they actually do is by putting something in your mouth, you now have pushed the person's tongue further back and you've actually made their sleep apnea worse. So most bite splints actually worsen sleep apnea. Wow. So they they don't, yeah. And they, people don't like to hear that when they've paid money for it. But, you know, that's why you tell them you can address both things at the same time. You can have an appliance that addresses clenching and breathing all at the same time. But yeah, it's again, it's this thing of, well, the dentist sees the teeth grinding. Oh, we just got to protect your teeth. Let's make this thing. Yeah, your, your teeth will be nice, but you'll feel like crap. So in terms of teeth grinding in kids, I find, especially between the ages of like three to six, is that like some kids just do that and then they, you know, it gets better? Or is that something that we think of as related to sleep disorder breathing in the young pediatric patient? Like I've never, I don't know how to place teeth grinding in the kid that comes in that you know, and again, maybe it's just my narrow, like, are you snoring? Are you mouth breathing? Do you have pauses? Poor concentration, bedwetting, you know, attention. And yet it may not be much of any of those things, but there may be teeth grinding and maybe an attention concern. And I, you know, might see two plus tonsils, but I'm like, do I watch you? Do I get a sleep study? Does this mean anything? I, I don't know where to put that. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, again, caveat, I'm not an expert in, in peds. I would say that there's it's at least worth investigating, right? And I feel like this is where we we get in, you know, because especially in kids, right? In kids, an AHI over one is, is sleep apnea, right? So, you know, it's at least worth investigating. And in that case, I would, you know, do they have allergies? You know, you can certainly, you know, a trial of Flonase is not going to hurt. The sleep studies, I understand, you know, in kids are are a little more difficult. And also, we got to think about this thing is, right, we're, we're not just dealing with like sleep apnea. It's just this upper airway resistance syndrome type thing, right? And again, do you see those other signs, right? Do you see the high arched palate? Yeah, it's the parents. Are they breathing? And that might be someone who might be a great, if they can tolerate, might be a good candidate for something like myofunctional therapy, right? Maybe it's just more of a habitual thing. Maybe it's a little bit of a dietary change. Maybe they just need some nasal sprays or their allergies addressed, right? But whatever you can do to get them breathing better, because the thought is, and again, I don't think there's necessarily hard data to support this, but the thought is that the bruxism is your body automatically trying to give you a jaw thrust, right? To help you breathe better. And that's where it, that's where it's coming from. You know, it's this what they call parafunctional activity that's stemming from improper breathing. So like I tell, you know, I'm sure you tell parents like a kid that snores, it's never normal to have a young kid that snores. It's probably not that normal to have a kid. You know, they're in your office for a reason, right? Someone sent them there for some sort of problem. So there's something going on. And you're right. It's usually the dentist, to be honest with you. 
which is great because there is some, you know, communication and collaboration. But sometimes because, like you said, I think from the beginning in our ENT, our traditional literature, whatever, what we learn, and maybe the education is changing now, but teeth grinding and sleep apnea in kids, it's not one year classic or even in the constellation. And I see a lot of teeth grinding, but as well as um, tongue thrust. And I don't always know where to place that and, you know, what that means. Well, the tongue thrust is like the tongue is looking for somewhere to go and there's no room, right? So what a tongue thrust in an adult, what you get is, I didn't mention this when you're talking about the physical exam, tongue scalloping. So scalloped edges on the tongue is that finding in an adult in and of itself is about 70% predictive for obstructive sleep apnea. Because Mm. what that, yeah, because what that means is while they're sleeping, their tongue is pushing against their teeth. And that's what's making those little indents on the tongue. So yeah, what that a tongue thrust says to me, and again, I think the myofunctional therapist would say this too, is that there's not enough room for their tongue to either sit down on the floor of their mouth or on the roof of their mouth, right? The bony structures are too narrow, and now the tongue is trying to find somewhere to go to open up the airway. So you'll see these teeth that get angled outwards, right? Instead of being straight up and down, they get pushed out because your body's trying to breathe. And then again, that's why you're saying when you see these orthodontic problems, it's like, well, why is it like that? Why did it get that way? You can turn the teeth in and make it look pretty, but you haven't fixed the problem. Yeah. Are a large percentage of your patients getting uh, sleep studies? Are you doing home sleep studies or lab sleep studies? Yeah, I have a pretty low threshold for sleep studies. We do mostly home sleep tests. What I'm really looking for is the designation between the people who have like really severe sleep apnea, who definitely need a CPAP or something like that in the meantime. It's helpful too. Sometimes in the in the younger patients, the women, you'll see these, you know, low AHIs, seven, eight. But I think we're accustomed to thinking of, again, sleep apnea in the traditional context of like, well, yeah, an AHI of seven, eight is not going to kill you and give you a heart attack at age 55. But it's still going to give you all these other sequelae, you know, being tired, concentration. You know, there isn't a good correlation between the severity of sleep apnea and the symptoms. So I would never use a normal home sleep test as a reason to say, don't address this. And I also like to look at the pattern because sometimes you'll see the pattern. We get like this little printout of of the position and the oxygen saturation. And so you'll see it'll be fine, fine, fine. Then about an hour, hour and a half in, all the events will start. And then the person will roll over and they'll stop. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they'll go on their back and it'll all start again. And you can show them that, see what, as you go into your deep, deepest, most restorative sleep, your sleep is getting interrupted. And this is why you feel like crap all day long. As far as your evaluation, when you're evaluating the nose, anything particular or special or different when, you know, because you are, you know, more focused on not just being able to breathe, but kind of like truly like good functional nasal breathing, meaning like when you look with a scope, are you looking before afrin, after afrin? Are you doing, you know, modified caudal? When you use a speculum, that's kind of like spreading the nose open. So that kind of changes how it looks like. What are ways that you've modified your exam as you've started to kind of hone in on nasal breathing? So I never decongest anybody before I examine them because who walks around decongested? <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, no, uh, it's a you good decongest point. anybody, their nose is going to look perfect. <laughs> and 
you know, for me, decongestion is like, okay, if you're going to do a flexible scope on somebody, you just want to make it less uncomfortable. But even then, so I don't decongest anybody. I primarily do, everybody gets a nasal endoscopy. So I pretty much never even pull out the speculum because, you know, you want to see the nose in its most normal state. Looking at, again, their facial anatomy, right? So is their maxilla narrow? Is their face long? Looking at their nasal valve is super important, you know, both externally and internally. You know, so caudal maneuvers, you know, caudal maneuver is going to help almost anybody breathe better, but looking for static or dynamic collapse. And that's why the scope is helpful too, because you'll stick a scope in and they'll have this horrible valve and then everything behind it is fine. The other thing that's really important for me that I have found which I think is kind of contrary to our thinking, is I really want to have a scope exam and a CT scan of the sinuses because I cannot tell you how many times the CT is just so revealing, especially we don't really do a great job of examining the posterior septum. You'll see these people who you think, oh, their septum's not so bad, and then they get a scan and they have these horrible posterior spurs, just like ridiculous noses. Or you'll get a, conversely, you'll get a scan and you'll look at the scan and you'll be like, you know what, their airway doesn't look so bad. It looks, you know, pretty open. You'll stick a scope in there and there's no room, none whatsoever. So they're very complementary to each other. And again, also you're looking for things like contrabilosa, obviously sinus disease, if there is any. We're never really taught. You can actually appreciate the nasal valve pretty well on a CT scan on the most anterior coronal cuts. You can actually see the kind of concavity that happens there and really appreciate how much it uh, obstructs the interior nose. So, but I do like to get a CT on almost everybody, you know, before deciding what I'm going to do with them. And that's going to help you more with nasal obstruction as opposed to, do you ever use it for sleep apnea evaluation for like tongue base or adenoids? No, not generally. So, and this is a different discussion. So I don't, aside from if someone has huge tonsils, I will do, I do intracapsular tonsillectomy on adults. I do not do any uvulectomies. I do not do any tongue-based procedures because they don't work. <laughs> they no, hurt. seriously. <laughs> they hurt. They, really they, they hurt. do not work. It's true. They don't work. What you need to do is you need to close your mouth, right? <laughs> because, you know, no, seriously, because when you close your mouth, that in and of itself is almost like a jaw thrust, right? So, or an oral appliance, those sorts of things. Like, again, to me, that's your demonstrating the the symptom, not the problem. So this other thing that we didn't talk about is there's this thing called the Starling resistor model. Do you guys know about this? No, tell me more. So basically, and it's much easier to understand with a picture, but essentially it's the Bernoulli principle, okay, applied to the human airway. So you've got two fixed segments. So in this case, your nose and your trachea with a collapsible segment in between them which is the pharynx. So there's a pressure differential between the nose and the throat or between, we'll call it the upper airway and the trachea. And at a certain point, there's a pressure, they call it the P-crit or critical pressure, where there's enough of a differential where you cause collapse of the middle segment. So the more pressure upstream, the more likely that segment is to collapse. So the nose, the pressure and the force of breathing through your nose is much less than the pressure and the force that you can breathe in through your mouth. So this is why mouth breathing and sleep apnea, it's not just the tongue, but it makes the pharynx actually more collapsible because you're bringing air in at a higher speed and a higher pressure 
which actually causes that collapse of the pharynx. So this is why the switch from mouth breathing to nose breathing actually helps keep the airway more open. Nasal breathing gets you better pharyngeal patency than mouth breathing, which sounds really weird, but it's true because you're not creating that vacuum effect. Exactly. Yeah, all goes back to physics. Do you do dices? Do you do drug-induced sleep endoscopy? I don't. I was never trained to do them. And in case, as what I just said, right, it doesn't really matter how the how the pharynx is collapsing. The reason it's collapsing is because there's too much pressure going through it, right? So, but I was never really trained to do it. And I don't do Inspire or any of those things. I have varying thoughts about it, but I think it's probably good for some patients. So I don't really have a reason to do the dices. Yeah, because it's not going to change your management probably, right? Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Every once in a while, um, a child may come in with a CT or whatnot. I can always look at the sagittal and sometimes look at the adenoids that way just because they may not let me scope them. And so sometimes that can be helpful, at least I think in like that sort of three to eight-year-old that may not sit for you. The other thing you can see in whether adults or kids on a coronal, and I'll show people this, you will actually see in the mouth that there's the tongue and then there's air. There's an air pocket above the tongue, which shows me like where I can show them, see your tongue is not sitting on the roof of your mouth. This tells me that this is another sign that you're a chronic mouth breather. Right When you're at rest, your tongue is not up on the roof of your mouth. So that's something you can probably see in the, in the kids too. Do people ever ask you about the role of tongue tie and sleep apnea? And what are your thoughts on that? Because on one hand, I'm like, why are we doing a frenulectomy if we're worried about sleep apnea, right? Shouldn't doesn't that make the tongue go back? But then sometimes patients will come in and ask, I was told by whoever that if we do a lingual frenulectomy, it will help him or her breathe better. And I don't know. Isn't that always the best when someone is like, someone else said I need XYZ procedure. But then again, maybe it's like my limited view of teeth grinding in the three-year-old. Maybe, you know, maybe there's, I need to be looking for something more because I don't understand. Yeah. What, so what I would say about that is you can be tethered by a tongue tie in terms of not being able to get the tongue to sit on the roof of the mouth. Because the, again, the proper rest position is mouth closed, tongue fully on the roof of the mouth, right? So if it's tethered in the vertical dimension, which is kind of the same thing that we look at when we look at tongue ties for speech and those sorts of things, I think that, you know, is worth thinking about. All this stuff about like posterior tongue ties and all these, I do not get very excited about. It has to be like a, for me, it has to be like a very obvious restriction, like a very clear, obvious problem. So I really don't look at it too much. But again, again, if you look at that kid and you're like, yeah, this kid is going to have speech issues, you know, if they're, you, they try to stick out their tongue and, you know, it's like one millimeter out of their mouth. Okay, fine. The other thing I would say is if you're working with someone like a myofunctional therapist and it's somebody that you trust and they say, look, I'm working with this kid, I'm working with this kid, they cannot get their tongue up on the roof of their mouth and it's really impairing things, you know, I would consider that if it matched up with what I saw in my exam. 
And your myofunctional therapists, are those usually speech pathologists? Yeah. It's, so it's actually its own classification, its own certification. So it's kind of annoying because sometimes it's hard to get insurances to pay for it or they don't, you know, it's a cash pay thing. But myofunctional therapy is its own field and they're hard to find. Good ones are hard to find. We need more of them for sure. But I'm sure with Googling or asking people, you know, especially if you talk to people who are a little tuned into this, more tuned into this world, they will know who to send people to. And segueing from that, you know, you refer patients to myofunctional therapists. Are there any other providers that you're working with? Like, let's say you've already kind of optimized the nose as much as you can and they're still mouth breathing, or let's say they are really resistant to any sort of procedural or surgical intervention, or maybe they're not a good candidate or for whatever reason, how are you kind of utilizing other services and colleagues to kind of help? You know, I know we talked about dentists, you know, sharing patients with some of the dentists. Sure. So a good dentist and a good sleep dentist is is invaluable. This might be a little too into the weeds, but when you talk about making oral appliances, there's different ways to take the bite position that you want them in. So the classical thing that most sleep dentists do is they use this thing, this instrument called a George gauge, which is basically how far can I pull your jaw forward? Like just pull it as far forward as I can. And that doesn't work and it gives people pain. So you want someone who's going to take the bite in a proper way. It's called the phonetic bite, but it's in a proper position that is a more functional position that actually still opens up the throat significantly, but it's not necessarily just the chin all the way forward. There are physical therapists who work a lot with TMJ and TMJ type problems, and they can be very helpful. So the dentists that I work with are, there's kind of two competing like schools. There's the American Academy of Orofacial Pain and the American Academy of Craniofacial Pain, but they treat patients very differently. So the people I work with are all associated with the American Academy of Craniofacial Pain. So if you, you know, look for providers who have that sort of background, that sort of training. And luckily, from what I found, it's becoming more and more of a thing in the dental community. They're doing a lot of good advocacy to try and raise people's awareness of this. And because a lot of times dentists will be the frontline people who are recognizing these problems. They'll see the tongue scalloping. They'll see the grinding. They'll see the high arched palate, you know, they'll see the giant tonsils and they can be the first ones to kind of direct these people to there's a problem here. Let's get it addressed. And then there are people who actually manage like the temporomandibular pain. So the person I work with the most is a dentist, but he does decompression therapy and other things to help relieve pain. Nasal stuff, obviously there's, you know, breathe right strips are great. If you have a problem getting breathe right strips to stay on, there are a variety of sort of intranasal silicone appliances. One is called a mute, like a tub, like the mute button on the remote control. It's a little intranasal dilator. I recently saw something called Hale, which is supposedly designed by an ENT. It also kind of sits in that nasal valve area, opens everything up, obviously maximizing topical treatment inside the nose. So, you know, intranasal steroids, combining that with intranasal antihistamine if needed. Allergy management, if that's part of this, you know, immunotherapy, nasal irrigations. And then also, there's actually, believe it or not, I was very surprised to learn about this. 
how much the diet can actually influence nasal congestion. So I've seen before and after scans of people who actually managed to go gluten-free and there's a humongous improvement in their nasal mucosal inflammation. So my dental colleagues will tell people avoid gluten and dairy. I tell people, look, I, you know, that all sounds nice in theory, <laughs> but it's very difficult to do. Uh, I know lots of people, probably including myself, who would choose nasal surgery over having to live the rest of their life without gluten and dairy. But there's also, so there's limiting benefit to to all of these things, but, you know, there's always non-invasive options. Yeah. The other thing, I can't let you go without asking about the mouth taping. What do you think about that? Putting tape across the mouth at night to make you breathe through your nose. So it's a thing and it works, you know, to an extent, right? So, you know, I hear stories about people who have, you know, done mouth taping and they had horrible congestion and the more and more they did it, their congestion improved and great. That's awesome. And, you know, it probably helps. It is something that I tell my patients to do postoperatively once they've healed. So anytime I'm treating a snoring patient, I always tell them, Step one is I have to get you breathing through your nose. Step two is I have to get you to close your mouth. And sometimes you automatically close your mouth and sometimes you don't. So this goes back to that. Is it is it habit, right? So my first thing after they've, you know, they're about four to six weeks out of nasal surgery, they're pretty much healed. I will have them start start mouth taping. And there's a variety of different products you can use for this. I just tell them to use regular medical tape. You don't need a very large piece. Put it on about 15 minutes before you go to bed at night so you kind of get used to the feeling. And then usually over a couple of weeks, you can train yourself to go the whole night with your mouth closed. And it works great for some people. I would say it's going to work better for people who have milder sleep apnea. And some people can't do it. So I say, okay, well, if that doesn't work for you, then that's when it's time for an oral appliance because an oral appliance is going to do essentially the same thing. Like it still allows you to breathe through your mouth, but it's going to stop the mouth hanging open, tongue falling back thing from happening. I'm glad you went over the list of all the sort of non-surgical options you can do, because I feel like the hard part is the oral appliances and myofectional therapy is cost, right? Most of it's not covered. And like you said, there are resources that are difficult to find. You have to find a myofunctional therapist that's in the area as well as a dental colleague that you can work with. And again, mostly it can be cost-limiting. In terms of age, I mean, granted, we do topical nasal steroid sprays, topical antihistamines, nasal rinses in kids. What's the youngest that you would do breathe right strips for? Um, and what's the youngest you would consider something like mouth taping for? That's a great question. Are we thinking like adolescents or are you thinking closer to like 10? Yeah, I'm thinking more. Well, because again, you're not going to see the nasal valve issues as much, I think, in younger kids, right? Because, you know, they haven't had the the skeletal growth to end up with that collapse, if that makes sense. The mouth taping, I don't know. I mean, obviously, that's something I would be very careful of in, in younger children, for sure. You know, I think they definitely need to be old enough that they could take it off themselves if they felt like they couldn't breathe, you know. So I would think maybe early adolescence for that. I don't know. That's a good question. I've never really thought about it in great detail. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I think probably teens, you know, 13 and up. But yeah. Not, not a three-year-old, <laughs> no, you know. Not a three-year-old. Yeah. Absolutely. And we don't want any mouth taping associated uh, no. asphyxia no, God. events. God, no. <laughs> no, thank you. 
And then about the uh, breathe rate strips. Do you ever have patients that are maybe history of cleft lip, you know, like craniofacial patients where um, the nasal obstruction, right? They've had the cleft rhinoplasty or they have an inherent reason. Do breathe rate strips help for those patients? I mean, breathe rate strips have never hurt anybody, right? So that's the nice thing about it. You know, these are all non-invasive things that you can try. There's a, I also there's a variety of nasal dilator things because, I mean, I mentioned a couple. There's nose cones. There's all sorts of stuff. But it's just kind of realizing that that's, it's more about that realizing that that's the area of obstruction and you need something to hold it open, basically. But yeah, I mean, I don't see a lot of those patients, obviously. But the great thing about it is it's all, it's all non-invasive. Well, Colleen, we are coming up on an hour, so it'd probably be a good place to put a pin in it or, or land this plane, as we like to say. But thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Where can listeners learn more? I mean, you and I, when we talked before, talked about James Nestor's book called Breath, the new art of an old science or the new science of an old art. I'm butchering yeah. that. <laughs> but but that's enough. People will be able to find it based well, on Google that Google it and make sure it's correctly written in the show notes. <laughs> yes, yes. But what, what other references would you recommend for people who are interested to learn more? I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there if you just start looking into, you know, benefits of mouth breathing and things like that. I mean, even, believe it or not, Google is a good resource. Um, again, that American Academy of Craniofacial Pain, you know, if you're looking for someone who has these sort of interests, one of the organizations that I have done a lot of this with, I've talked to some of their conferences, it's called TMJ and Sleep Therapy Center International. They have a lot of good resources. They have books they put on courses. So, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I actually went to one of their courses. They were so excited. They're like, we've never had an ENT take one of these courses. But it's all out there if you want to find it. It's just I think people don't even know that this is a thing. They don't know that it exists. And I think we could take a lot better care of patients if we knew more about it. Absolutely. And if people want to find you or connect with you, do you have a website or social media handles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter. My handle is I have sinus. And, uh, Very appropriate. <laughs> and people can always, you know, email me. I'm just cplein at gmail.com. You know, I'm always happy to talk to anybody about any of these, about anything at any awesome. time. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Colleen. I learned a ton. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Kieran Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith Savadoff design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.